Welcome to Windsor Christian Fellowship Church Podcast. Our church vision is to win generations to Christ, connect them to His master plan, empower them to succeed, and grow the kingdom of God. For other podcast resources or more information about Windsor Christian Fellowship, please visit us at www.wcf.ca. Psalm 91, 1-12. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust Him. For He will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with His feathers. He will shelter you with His wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night nor the arrow that flies in the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Just open your eyes and see how the wicked are punished. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you, no plague will come near your home, for he will order his angels to protect you wherever he goes. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt hurt your foot on a stone. We hope you have a great Sunday, WCF. We love you guys. Peace. Good morning, guys. Can we welcome Pastor RJ, the man of the house today? Thank you, guys. Thanks for worshiping today, leading us in worship. It's good to see the newlyweds up there. How is everyone today? Welcome. Welcome in person. Welcome online. We're so glad to see all of you. How many just want his presence more? Touch from the master's hand. I've been uh, meditating all weekend on some of this. We... uh, you know when you're kind of just going through life and God just kind of drops things in your spirit? Has anyone ever had that where he just says, hey, here, hey, here, hey, here. And you're like, what, what, just, what, what, what's going on? And then just as I was meditating this weekend, you know, on different things, first my 16-year-old was driving in the van and I was in the back seat. Sometimes that works out better if my wife sits in the front with her. But she braked, right? Like a little bit suddenly, as sometimes new drivers do when people pull out in front of you. She did great, she, she drove fine, but um, remember in that moment, the Spirit of God just said, you know, a sudden break. People need to know that a sudden break is coming. And then, yeah, there's some that really need a sudden break more than others, but yes, there's a sudden break coming to your marriage. There's a sudden break coming to your situation. There's a sudden break coming. And then I was, swimming in Lake Huron a little bit later with my daughter and her friend. And we were kind of swimming from sandbar to sandbar, and it gets pretty deep in between the sandbars, and it's a little bit over their head. And I, I remember looking at her, and I was like, okay, you just keep swimming. You're going to get there. You're going to get back to solid ground where you can stand up, and the water won't be over your head. Just keep swimming in that direction. And they did great. They're good swimmers. And 
we got out there, you know, just Spirit of God was like, see, her determination to keep swimming and she got to her destination. And then a little while later, I was kind of watching the waves crest, you know, and the waves are coming in and they kind of break. And he said, just like a wave, it's starting to break over people's lives right now, that the anointing of God is breaking over your life and your situation is starting to turn around. And then there was one more, what was the other one? <laughs> there was a few of them like that all weekend. Oh, this morning I was driving in and the storm was just starting to clear out. I don't know if you ever watched, but the clouds, they begin to break up in the sky. And the rain that we need, you know, to water the land. The storm though, after it's done, the clouds start breaking up and there's like new life and new growth that's gonna come forth. And in our lives today, I believe that God wants you to know that there's some new life that's gonna come forth in areas of your life that have been arid and dry. And uh, yeah, that's been, you know, a consistent message that I think that God's been speaking to me all weekend. And I'm sharing that with you, but I wanna do something different. And let's take communion together right now. So if you stand with me. You know, we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to celebrate his death and resurrection until he comes. And it's really a moment of rejoicing. It's a, it's a time of gladness. It's a, it's a great time for us to be together as his people. And Jesus, when he took the bread and he broke it, right before he was betrayed, actually, and he said, you know, do this in remembrance of me. And when we look at our lives and we look at what's going on around us in our world, some, some moments are marked by majesty and glory of the King. And other times we say, God, where are you in the midst of this? And you know, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what's going on in your life. Maybe you're struggling in relationship. Maybe you're struggling in your marriage. Maybe you're struggling with work and you don't know what tomorrow's gonna look like or how your next bill's gonna get paid. How are you gonna eat next week? There's moments of our life that are marked by majesty and glory. Maybe you're struggling in your mind just to keep your head in the game so you don't yield to the depression that's knocking at your door or the anxiety or you don't get overwhelmed by everything that's going on all around you and swept away. The word of God is an anchor to our life today and the bread of life is gonna come forth. So Father, as we gather your people today, in the name of Jesus, we declare health and wholeness over everyone. We declare the life of God and Father, I thank you. As you've shown me several pictures that the wave is breaking over the lives of our people a sudden break in the right direction. Especially for those that are struggling with finances, Lord, I thank you for a sudden break in the right direction. And Lord, we look to you. And as the clouds break up and the new life comes forth, Lord, I thank you that a season of refreshing comes to your people today. In Jesus' name.
in the cup, the blood of the new covenant. There's forgiveness. There's freedom. There's relationship with Christ. And at the table, we all sit together. We're all his children. He loves us equally. And he's pouring out his presence in your life today. He's right there with you. He's right beside you. And he wants to bring healing. He wants to bring forgiveness. He wants to bring life. So Father, I thank you that the dead places in our heart are being resurrected right now. I thank you, Lord, that as your life is coming forth, that the new life pushes out the dead places in our hearts and our minds. That we're leaving our past in the past, and we died to that in baptism, at salvation. And I thank you, Lord, that today your life is coming forth through your people, and that we are having moments marked by your majesty and marked by your glory in our lives today because you came for freedom in the name of Jesus. You can go ahead and be seated at this time. I want to encourage all of you that it's really important right now in this season that we listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Mike. That we listen to the Spirit's voice. We follow his direction and his guidance. Today I'm going to be talking to you about faith and fear. And uh, there's a couple concepts a little bit later on when I was looking at this. I found a, a message by Pastor Dan Shambro, and, and I thought he had some really good insight on holiness and uncleanness and... and I added some of those elements from his message into my elements, or into my, into my message. But I wanted to pick up in Mark chapter 4. We're going to start in 36 if you're following in your Bible. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind is Jesus gives this parable of the mustard seed, which at the time was the smallest seed that they planted. And he's talking about how this little tiny seed grows to become a great bush that even the birds nest in. And he was using that as an example of faith because you don't have to have a lot of faith at the beginning. We all get a measure of faith. But if we exercise it, if we plant the Word of God in our hearts, it's going to grow and it's going to produce life. So immediately after this illustration in Mark 4.36, it says, So they took a Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking in the boat and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care? We're going to drown. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence! Be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other, even the wind and waves obey him. I don't want to say that Jesus was exasperated by his disciples, but it looks like he was a little exasperated with them. And you got to remember, at this point, he's kind of looking at them like, you still don't get it? Guys, did you not see when I healed the leper? 
Did you not see when I healed the paralyzed man? Did you not see when the withered hand became straight? Or how about when he fed the 5,000? Think about this. I mean, I think there's an element with him when he brought faith and healing and deliverance and freedom to everywhere he went. And there's this contrast here between fear and faith that Jesus introduces. I mean, even the demonic fled before Jesus. They were terrified before him. And I think we have to remember, like, Jesus, the one who created the wind and the waves. Keep that in mind. He created the wind and the waves. They operate according to his word. Doesn't it say he holds all things together by his word? He holds all things together. And what happens is we have to have an understanding that the one who created the wind and waves, it would be very logical for him to be able to speak to the wind and waves. They obey his voice. They exist because his voice spoke them into existence. And the disciples were kind of stunned. Really? Guys, you're missing the whole point. He's God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. Then guess what? Not only the wind and waves are going to obey him. Trees that aren't producing fruit are going to get cut out and uprooted. What did he do? He cursed the fig tree too, and it withered up. It started to die. Why? Because it wasn't producing figs. That sets the foundation for some questions that we see asked at the end of chapter 4. Who is this guy that even the wind and waves, who is this guy, his identity, that even the wind and waves obey him? Who are you? And I think there's even an element in here where they were like, what did we sign up for? Did, did any of you ever get with the wrong crowd for a few minutes and maybe some things happened that you didn't think were going to happen and it led you down a path that wasn't the best? A couple honest people in here. You know, I had a really good experience when I was 17. It's a long time ago. That's 30 years ago. But I lived my life according to this principle from that day to this. Because when I was 17, I got permission from the lieutenant governor to go into the federal prisons on a ministry team. Usually I had to be 18. But when we went into the Quinty Detention Center, I sat down across the table from a young man who had just been tried and convicted, and he was given 25 years without parole for murder. But here's the story. He grew up in the church just like me. He didn't really get into a lot of trouble just like me. I guess the difference is some people get caught, some people don't. I never killed anyone. But he went out with the wrong crowd from school one day. Everyone say one day. One night. One bad decision. And, you know, and they were just a bunch of guys goofing off, and they did some graffiti and broke some windows, you know, vandalism. But then they came across a, a man in the alley and a fight ensued, and his friends beat him to death while he looked on horrified. And because they were cracking down on teen violence, him and all his friends were sentenced to very long prison sentences. I remembered him when I turned 42, a long time ago. But I remember I was like, man, he's just getting out. He's just starting to live his life now. And I thought, you know, the power of one decision can change the course of your life. One decision towards God can alter your history. One decision away from God can alter your, your future. And uh, in that moment, I think the disciples were kind of like, who did we align ourselves with? I mean, this guy is something else. Not only does he heal the sick, cast out the demonic, the weather listens to him. That's a good, that's a good alignment. That's someone you want to be aligned with. 
But then, going into Mark chapter 5 with these questions, you see they land, and instantly this demon-possessed guy, and I'm probably not going to read Mark 5, 1 to 41, but I'm going to kind of work through it. This demon-possessed guy comes out of the caves, the graveyards, essentially, and uh, he's violent, he's cutting himself, he screams and shrieks all the time, and anyone that comes in that region, he attacks. Now, I know there's three accounts of this in the Scripture, and Matthew talks about that there was two of them that came, but it seems that only one of them spoke, and Mark and Luke were focusing on the guy talking. You ever talk to two people, but only one says something? And you say, I met a guy on the street, and he said, you know what I'm talking about? And I'm talking about the guy that spoke. I'm not talking about the two people. I'm talking about the one person. And, And I think what a lot of people have to remember is not a contradiction, just a perspective. But this guy was totally given over the demonic. And I mean, they tried to capture him and put him in chains and fetters, and he would break the chains and fetters. Hulk smash. So he comes running at this new group of people that landed on the shore that was his territory. And Jesus figures out what's going on right away and discerns that there's a spirit operating in him or a few of them. And what does he do? He rebukes the spirit and says, come out of that man. Then the demons realized who they were up against, and they fell down and started having a conversation, didn't they? Please, Jesus, don't send us to, back to the pit. You know, we don't want to go back to hell. We don't want to go back to a dry place where we can't manifest our lust in, the, in a human. So they're like, would it be okay with you if we went into the pigs? And Jesus is like, yeah, sure. I said, come out of the man, go in the pigs, I don't care. And like, what, two, 3,000 pigs go run off the cliff? <laughs> kind of backfired on the demons. I don't think they anticipated that the pigs were going to go jump off the cliff after they came in, but they did. What a waste of bacon. <laughs> All that bacon. Sorry. <laughs> in my house, we have a saying, everything's better with bacon. <laughs> in the end, the man got free. Jesus set him free. Jesus told the man, go share the story of what God's done with you with everyone. Go tell everyone what God's done for you. And there was 10 cities in that region, and he went around as an evangelist and told everyone about the power of God that came and set him free from the power of the demonic. It's funny, because in some of the other stories, Jesus is like, don't tell anyone what happened. And other times, he's like, go tell everyone. And I think it just kind of had to do with kind of maybe where they were located and what was going on, because if the crowd was ready to forcibly go make Jesus their king and try to riot against the Romans, that might not have worked out how Jesus wanted it to. So I think he was kind of looking at what was going on and saying, we better just keep this between us. It's a good miracle, you know. But on the other times, he said, go tell tell them what God's done for you. So the people of that region are terrified of Jesus, and they ask him to leave. You know, sometimes people don't have a concept of what to do with the deity when they walk in among you. I mean, how many of you have encountered God's presence and you didn't know what to do? So he goes back across the lake and immediately the ruler of the synagogue petitions him to come and heal his daughter before she dies, Jairus. And I mean, essentially, he walked up to Jesus and said, Jesus, you are my only hope. Please come and heal my daughter. I'm going to tell you something. Rulers of synagogues in that day, there wasn't too many of them that were Christ's followers. If there was a lot of them that were Christ's followers, you wouldn't have seen them crucified. 
But this one must have seen some of the miracles and must have seen the authority he have over the demonic. And when he looked at it, he said, you know what? The only hope for my daughter is if this man Jesus is the healer that he says he is. And he comes and lays his hands on her and she'll get better. So Jesus agrees to come and heal his daughter. It's an urgent request, you know. And on the way over to Jairus' house, there's a crowd. And he's walking through the crowd. You ever walk through a crowd? When I was young, I didn't like crowds, and then I kind of got used to it. And you kind of do the, and you're bouncing off people as you walk, and you're brushing shoulders, and people bumping. Not today, right, because we all social distance. I'll come back to that, don't worry. But there was this woman who had a bleeding issue for 12 years, actually. And she came up and touched the hem of his garment, the tassel on his garment. But she was legally unclean. By that, she was temporarily unable to go participate in community. In this case, physical touch was forbidden. So she wasn't supposed to go out in community and touch other people. It's a hygiene issue at the time. They, did, they didn't have the knowledge of disease that we do today. And even today, I think God still knows more about disease than most humans do, collectively. But you know, it's like when you get a 14-day quarantine right now, you serve God and you serve humanity by staying home and serving and, and fulfilling the quarantine. But this woman was isolated for uh, 12 years. I mean, come on, how many of you are done with COVID now? Some of you are done with COVID? Yeah, finished? No more? She had 12 years of quarantine where she wasn't allowed to have physical touch with people. Think about that, 12 years. And she exercised a huge amount of faith and civil disobedience in going into the crowd and touching the garment of Jesus because unclean and contagious can be dangerous because it can make a clean thing unclean. Ha, my wife's not at this service, so I can use this illustration. You know those guys that go in the restroom and they don't wash their hands after, then they come out and they shake your hand? That's good. <laughs> You're going to see through the course of this that hygiene is something that's actually very biblical and very important. And most of your old covenant law was hygiene driven. God wanted to have good hygiene because we know that that reduces disease. Here's what I want to get to. The woman, the bleeding issue, had an understanding of something that some people never realize. In the Old Testament, the altar, once it was consecrated, it became a holy place. And anything unclean that touched the altar became clean. The unclean didn't defile the altar. The holiness of God was on the altar. And at the altar, the place of exchange, the place where the blood of Christ comes into our life, that's where the unclean becomes clean. And she realized that this man who was a healer, healing sick and oppressed people, this man who is driving out the demonic, this man who had authority over the wind and the waves, this man who multiplied the food, she realized something, wait a minute, I think he's a holy place. And if I can just touch the hem of his garment, my faith and confidence is in that God will heal me and bring me to a place of cleanness and my uncleanness will not affect him. Just like in the old covenant, the altar was a place where the unclean was made clean. At the cross, the unclean becomes clean. The unholy becomes holy. The isolated become a part of his family. We, the church, must say untainted from the things of this world. 
our pride, our selfishness, our greed, our yielding to the lust of the flesh, gossip, murmuring, complaining, putting yourself higher than others, belittling others, especially those who don't dress like you, look like you, or act like you. In faith, in holiness, the unclean becomes clean at the cross. We have to allow the stain of sin to be removed from our life by the blood of Christ, which sanctified the altar, and a great exchange takes place. We take our life of sin and pain, and we exchange it for a life of hope and love and forgiveness. But I want to mention to you, throughout history, Christians have served humanity in times of global pandemics, just like the one we got going on right now. In the second century, the Antonine Antonian plague killed up to 25% of the Roman Empire. And in the third century, the plague of Cyprian, the Christians cared for the sick even when the doctors of the day ran and hid. And they did. They went out to their country estates and they locked the gates and stayed away from people. But it was the Christians that went in to the cities and it was the Christians that went in and helped the people that couldn't help themselves. And it was the Christians who cared for the sick it was the Christians who went in and helped with food and water and hygiene for the people that were struggling in that day. And some of the, uh, some of the scholars have concluded that in the cities the Christian care was at, the death rate dropped by up to 50% in those communities in those days. They served the sick and the dying. And sometimes they got sick and died too. That'll mess with your theology. Emperor Julian, a little bit later, was trying to restart the pagan religion. And he was frustrated with those Galileans, those Christians. That's what he called them, the Galileans. Because the Christians would even care for people that were non-Christians that were suffering. And they would come in and they would demonstrate the love of God for them. And he said to his team, he said, listen, unless we can love people better than the Christians are loving people, we're never going to get our religion relaunched. And they couldn't do it. And you saw through the second and the third century, Christianity started to spread throughout the Roman Empire even more and more. Even though many of the caregivers gave their lives to the plague, they were helping to fight. In John 15, the Bible tells us in verse 12 and 13, this is my commandment, love each other in the same way I've loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's lives for one's friends. What does that look like for us today? For some, it's inconvenient to volunteer as a kids' church worker or as an usher because we don't have time, we're too busy. For others, what does it look like to lay down your life for someone else to serve humanity? When I'm looking at John 15, I don't think the answer Jesus is looking for, well, I showed up this week. I talk to friends that are employers and they have people working for them and they've got employees sometimes that show up for work and think they deserve a medal. Kind of look at them like, it's not just showing up, there's this element of working hard. Some things get lost in translation. We should be the hardest workers as Christians. You know that, right? We should be the ones that love people the most, the best. In the 15th century, during the bubonic plague, 
Martin Luther stayed in Wittenberg and ministered to the sick. Even though his friends said, you need to leave town, you need to go, run away. He said, I can't because I'm obliged to serve people because I love them. His daughter Elizabeth died in that season from the plague. It was great cost to him to serve Christ and to love others. But they loved not their lives because what? They were looking to serve humanity, to, to relieve suffering. In fact, as a Christian, if we see suffering people as a Christ follower, it's our moral obligation to do what we can to serve them, love them, and care for them. So many are afraid and anxious and depressed today. I just read a recent study in the United States. Depression is up 24% in the last six months. Now, I kind of sit back on my armchair quarterback and say, well, when you isolate people and take away their face-to-face -face connection, what other conclusion, or what do you think is going to happen? But I ask those questions about humanistic responses all the time. Because when man tries to solve things without God, it always leads to destruction. Christianity was instrumental in founding compassion-based care houses. I think we know them as hospitals today. But at one time, it was not uncommon for monasteries and cathedrals to have a wing for the disabled, the sick, and the elderly. And it was the priests that did double duty as a priest and a doctor at the time, and they were the ones that learned medicine and how to care for people who were sick. Because in the ancient world, they were cruel, man. If you were sick, if you were disabled, they left you to die. There was no, before Christ came, there wasn't a whole lot of care for people that were struggling. I've observed today that despite the vows to preserve life, many doctors without Christ at the center of their care model, I hope you heard me carefully when I said that because there's a lot of doctors that have Christ at the center of their care model. They've shifted into taking life instead of preserving it. Killing the innocent, killing the elderly and the terminally ill in the name of compassion and convenience. Or there's another part to this where we don't treat people with the same compassion and level of care due to biases of race and socioeconomic status or even religious belief in some cases. It used to be when you studied medicine, it was because you valued life and you wanted to uphold the sanctity of life. As we take Christ out of the care model, as we take Christ out of the center, we're moving further and further away from that. And then we start justifying the taking of life instead of the caring for life. The Bible gives a woe to the lawyers and the experts in religious law. It's one thing to quote the scripture at someone to justify your point of view, especially on disputable matters. It's another thing to walk across the aisle and extend a hand. Think of the woman at the well or the Good Samaritan. Both of them were hated by the Jewish people. But Jesus reached out and extended grace and love, ultimately accepting and valuing those that were not embraced by the culture he was born into. The character of Christ that we're to emulate is accepting people, loving people. As Christians, things like masks and vaccinations and protests or even politics, especially politics from other countries, U.S., it should not polarize us into camps and create division where the body of Christ. So 
I'm gonna encourage you, before you post again on whatever platform you choose, we have to ask, am I communicating the love of Christ through my messaging? Because a lot of times we don't. Some years ago, I had a conversation with a Muslim friend. And he started by playing a video of a Muslim scholar talking about how Muslims are better Christians than Christians are. And he was quoting from the Old Testament where it says not to eat pork. And he said, Christians eat pork, but Muslims don't. So we actually follow the Bible better than Christians do. And I kind of laughed to myself and I thought, okay, are we going to have a conversation as friends here and I can actually share some things or is this just kind of, do you want me to kind of go through this? And I said, what I need to do is give you a little bit of a background of the Bible and how Christianity works. And I talked about how the old covenant pointed to the new covenant and how Jesus came. And because Jesus loved people, you know, it's not so much about what we do or don't do now. And there is things God has called us to do, like love him and love our neighbor. But it's, it, it's, it's less about the, you can do this and this and this and this and not this and this and this. And it's more about having a relationship with him. And the outpouring of it is we love people and we love each other. That's the expression that we're looking for. And, you know, over a period of time in our conversation, you know, I also acknowledge to him that there's many Christians that kind of do the same thing with the Koran where they cherry pick verses to fit their own narrative. And I think in our mutual knowledge and willingness to grow and understanding of one another, we were able to come to some conclusions. You know, he didn't move into Christianity, I didn't move into Islam, but I have a better understanding of where he was coming from and he certainly has a better understanding of Christianity at this point. And now through relationship, we will continue our conversation as time progresses. In John 6, verse 16, that evening the disciples went down to the store to wait for him. Shore to wait for him, store. But as darkness fell and Jesus hadn't come back, they got in the boat and headed across the lake towards Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them and the sea grew very rough. They had rowed three or four miles and suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water towards the boat and they were terrified. They always get terrified. But he called out to them, don't be afraid, I'm here. They were eager to let him in the boat and immediately they arrived at their destination. Think about this. How many of you have been in choppy water? Some of you don't go on boats. I remember one time I was in 19 to 22 foot swells in the ocean. That's 19 to 22 foot waves. It was tossing that cruise ship around like it was, you know, a toy boat in the bathtub, man. It was like... And then I was talking to a friend who was an officer on one of those cruise lines, and she told me, oh, yeah, we regularly used to have waves up to 35 feet, even up to 50 sometimes. And I thought, whoa. On the Sea of Galilee, I don't think they had 35-foot waves, but it would probably be more like, you know, Lake Erie with the 10 to 12-foot waves that you get once in a blue moon or the 6-foot waves that you get sometimes. But in those days with those boats, that would have tossed that boat all over the place and it was taken on water and they were scared. But think about it, you're out in the middle of the storm, you're on the lake, you're on a boat, you're trying to row for shore, but the waves are getting worse and worse, your boat's starting to sink a little bit. And then you see this apparition appear. <laughs> you see this figure appear and start walking towards you. How many say that would get my attention? No, it wasn't an apparition, it was Jesus in the flesh walking on the water because again, he created water, so it's subject to his law and his word. And if he tells himself he's going to walk on it, guess what's going to happen? It's going to hold him up. If you're spending time with Jesus, though, you have nothing to fear. It's funny how traveling with him gets you to where you're going. 
This is why personal prayer and daily scripture reading is so important. How are you ever gonna create a relationship with Jesus if you never spend any time with him or read his word? I mean, anyone remember back when you were single before you were married and you had a crush or if you're single now and you have your crush? You know, that person that you think, wow, I'd like to get to know that person better. None of you remember this? Thank you. But you know, nowadays we kind of creep them, don't we? People creep each other. They go on their social media and they try to find out all about them and they ask all their friends about them and stuff. But before all those, before we had all that, the only way you got to know someone was you walked across the room and you talked to them. Face-to-face -face conversation. And that's how you get to know someone, through conversation. How are you going to develop a relationship with the Creator if you never have conversation with Him? Your relationship with Christ should cause faith to arise in your heart every day. And as you spend time with him, you should be encouraged. You should be built up in your faith. You should be motivated. And you know what? I realize that every person who gets sick and dies in relationship with Christ will be resurrected. They come back to life. They get raised. Sometimes healing doesn't look like we think it should. But as a Christian, we have to come to an understanding that we have absolutely no reason to fear death. I'm not suggesting you go jump off the cliff like the pigs, but we have no reason to fear death. Because in this life, it's only temporary and it's a momentary thing anyways. And we do everything we do for his glory. And if in the process of serving humanity, my life has to go, guess what? I get a better resurrection anyways. I get a new body. It's not a bad thing. Jesus is clearly established in Mark 4 and 5 as the master of wind and wave, the healer of the sick, the conqueror of the hordes of hell. The evil spirits were terrified of him. The liberator of those who were oppressed. He's even master over death because at the end, you see he walks into Jairus' house and he raises his daughter from the dead. Even the dead obey him. And he restored life to one where life had gone. And she came back to life. The resurrection life of Jesus is in you as a Christ follower. But the question is, is he the master of our life today? Is your faith in Jesus alone? Or are you bound up by the shackles of fear that it's paralyzing your ability to reach out to others, to demonstrate the love and compassion of God, to worship together as his body, or even to sing praises? We were made for connection. Let's be the hands and feet of Jesus to our friends, our family, our neighbors, and our coworkers. But there's a key in all of this. Two things. One is understanding that our safety and security and happiness is not found in this world. It's found in our future with him and the life that's to come. And the second aspect of this conversation is listening to the voice of God. You have to listen to the Holy Spirit. It's spirit-directed obedience that brings about the fruit of the spirit. Too many people, they get a concept and they run off in the flesh and they wonder why they have problems. What is the Holy Spirit telling you to do and what is he telling you to do today? We have to obey the Holy Spirit. You have to know his voice, but he says, my sheep know my voice. If you're a Christ follower, you can know his voice. 
You develop that ear to listen to his voice by spending time with him every day. And as you listen to him and you're obedient, you will do the things that God has called you to do and go the places God has called you to go. And you will say the things that God wants you to say. And you can be a blessing to many. So stand with me. I want to pray with all of you. You know, in the world around us, there's lots of fear. But we're Christians. We are not supposed to operate in fear. It's inconsistent with your nature because we have the nature and character of Christ inside of us and there's faith inside of us. I didn't say foolishness. I said faith. And what we'll do is, you know, at this time of the service, we receive tithes and offerings. And, you know, in our faithfulness to giving, that law of seed time and harvest is activated inside of our life. And God produces a hedge about us. God produces blessing, and he gives seed to the sower. So, Father, I thank you for the men and women with me today. And, Lord, I pray that we can activate the faith that you've given us. And we can grow our faith. And we can continue, Lord, to trust you with our whole life. And as we hear your direction and guidance, Holy Spirit, I thank you that in our obedience, we're going to give you glory. Show us how we individually can serve others. Help us to reach out to our neighbors, to those that are struggling. Help us to minister to the needs in our community and show us the path, the way. Lord, as people sow in your kingdom today, I thank you that there's an open heaven over their life and that you give seed to the sower, that you rebuke the devourer from their household. Lord, as we prayed at the beginning or read the scripture at the beginning with the newlyweds, I thank you that Psalms 91 concludes that no plague will come near our dwelling. It's clearly stated. So we're going to put our faith and our confidence and our hope in the creator, in his word and his truth and his reality. Father, I thank you that we can put down a spirit of fear and we can take on a sound mind and a powerful spirit, and we can declare the love of God to everyone we meet. So as they go, Father, I thank you that you're working out our salvation each day, and you're faithful to complete the work you began in us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Anyways, God bless you guys. Have the greatest weeks of your life, and let's reach out and love our neighbor. Amen.